thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at this system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about. Him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. Evil has gone. Hello, welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. This is the premium side, and this is uh, part two of our episode about Citigroup and its billionaire former CEO, Sandy Weil. Uh, I'm Sean P. McCarthy, joined here by my co-hosts. Steve Jeffries. Yogi Paywall. Uh, and so we're going to kind of pick up the biography of Sandy Weil from where we left off in part one, just to kind of bring you up to speed, refresh your memory. Uh, Sandy Weil uh, was, you know, kicked out of American Express. He went and he bought up a loan sharking business in Baltimore. Uh, this was called Commercial Credit. He took over Commercial Credit in 1986. We went through all the different cost cutting that he put into effect, such as you know, dumping out the coffee pots and throwing the Wall Street Journal subscriptions mm-hmm. out the window and, you know, slashing the medical benefits, rating $50 million from the pension fund, you know, all those kinds of things you need to be uh, a business genius uh, and on the cover <laughs> of Fortune magazine. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so like he raids Commercial Credit and his slashing all these expenses to the bone uh, works pretty well and he also like we also mentioned he starts introducing all these other variable rate loan products and uh he's making a good business on the retail lending market where you know these kind of blue collar workers who can't always get a loan at a traditional bank they walk into his offices and he's got his team and he's teaching them hey you got to cross sell them on a million different products and, you know, this is loan sharking 101. You just get your teeth into them and you keep it going forever. So by 1987, this company is profitable and the stock is up and he's doing very well. And basically what happens is in 1987, there's the uh, massive Black Monday crash, the largest crash in, the, uh, in a single day in the history of the stock market. And this is a good buying opportunity for him mm-hmm. because commercial credit puts Sandy Weil in the position where he has the liquidity to wait until the market goes bad for other people and then start snapping up other companies. Similar to uh, Carl Icahn buying a lot of oil right now as it's been crashing for the last handful of weeks. Oh, I didn't know Icahn's been buying oil. Yeah, I saw that in the news recently, yeah. and I was like, oh, Icahn's on into oil? Well, isn't this a mighty interesting... That basically tells you, like, yeah, he talked to somebody in the Trump administration who was like, we're going to bail this out next yeah. week. <laughs> so, Yeah. We'll, we'll try to get this out, this episode out fast so our listeners can buy oil <laughs> on the stock tip we've just given you. I, I was looking at research on Jamie Dimon and Sandy Wheel, and they have a bitter feud. And in that article, it talked about how Bill Ackman and Carl Icahn have buried their hatchet and what that means. And that's how I got stuck into looking at Carl Icahn buying oil stocks right now. But I mean, you know, mm. the system is rigged and the people within the network know how to rig it for themselves. Yeah. Oh, this is oil stocks and not oil itself. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sorry if I didn't make that clear. I was going to say um, it might be... It's actually, they'll give you a, a dollar or two to buy an oil barrel future. Yeah, I, ho- I hope they do. I hope they give me more than that. Uh, well, the, at least they did. 
You might have missed out on actually being paid to take oil. Carl Icahn has been stashing oil barrels in his fourth and fifth bedrooms. <laughs> yeah. uh, but so, you know, and so we'll kind of run through the Sandy Wild biography. We'll uh, see how much we get through in this part. And then probably the part three will focus more on Citigroup, the company itself, uh, dealing with the uh, 2008 financial crisis and the current coronavirus crisis. But, you know, so when we're talking about Sandy Weil and Citigroup, we are going through these moves, and this is all leading towards him taking over a company called Traveler's Insurance, merging it with Citibank, and creating Citigroup. Uh, so we'll, we'll kind of go without too much detail through the process of him getting there and changing the banking system forever. But commercial credit, this company was the springboard, and then in uh, 1987... The stock market crashes, and he starts buying up more things and incorporating them into his empire. Um, and sorry, I should just say again, my source for the biography here is the book Tearing Down the Walls by Monica Langley. But the stock market crash comes, he buys up a company called Gulf Insurance, um, and then he buys up a brokerage called Smith Barney Incorporated. Hmm. Uh, its parent company was called uh, Primerica, like Pre-America or something, right, true, P-R-I-M-E-R. ICA. It's interesting how I like remember all of these companies, but for like the weirdest reasons. Like I feel like Travelers Insurance logo was like a red umbrella or something like that. Right. It and was like Pre America. I remember seeing them on like NYSC coverage, and like it. You know, I just presume those companies went under for whatever reason. But you know, you go into a handful of billionaire bios and uh, life stories, and it becomes pretty obvious that a good chunk of them just get bought and merged into something else. Very private equity-esque. Well, like, so, like, Travelers and Primerica, you know, they end up getting bought and merged into larger companies. Uh, they, their branding is still, like, I don't know what it was about, like, 90s TV or something, but the branding stuck, seemed to have stuck in people's minds. Well, like, so that's the thing, and this is jumping ahead slightly, but Travelers Insurance, uh, Yogi mentioned the Red Umbrella. The Red Umbrella is like a historic symbol. It was more than 100 years old, I think 130 years old at the time he buys Travelers Insurance. It's so associated with the Red Umbrella. So what they do is, you know, when they merge with Citibank and they become Citigroup, this new massive criminal fraud scheme takes the Red Umbrella and we're like, hey, we're the mafia, but we have a very nice icon that you associate with your childhood and a trustworthy insurance salesman up the street. Um, and not only that, after 9-11, actually, Citigroup, uh, I think a year or two after, spins off Traveler's Insurance, but they keep the red umbrella. Wow. So they're like, you can be your own, but we're taking your 130 years of trust in history. Because, you know, that's the whole thing with symbols. And they even talk about this in the Monica Langley book. You can essentially buy trust by just right. buying a company that has a 100 or 50 year or whatever reputation and buying its symbol and putting that on your shit. And people assume, oh, well, this must be the same trustworthy, longstanding brand when it's not at all. Yeah, the uh, Land of Lakes Butter removed their Native American woman from their brand, but they added like established over a hundred years ago onto the labeling, which I found, you know, whenever some company has a racist symbol, I presume they're old. <laughs> so the fact that they were like, well, they, we want to let you know we're still pretty old. was very interesting to me. Hmm. Yeah. The uh, land of lakes, native American butter woman had, uh, had to leave because she got into Harvard law school. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was elected Senator from Massachusetts. So she had to step down. 
from her position at Land of Lakes. I thought she was protesting uh, another pipeline. Uh, we got to get her off the butter. <laughs> that would be great. They should add a pipeline to the Land of Lakes butter. <laughs> <right there>. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do it in stages. So there's like protesters, and then you see like people being sprayed with fire hoses, and then mm-hmm. then there's a pipeline oh, it's in on the, the butter. It's in like the background. <laughs> the water slowly starts becoming murkier and murkier as time goes on. This is, this is South Dakota. What happened to this water? Uh, that Native American woman stopped kneeling in front of it, and guess what? They took over. Couples like getting into arguments like, this butter is burning my eyes. Did you buy the <laughs> tear gas flavor again? <laughs> but uh, so Sandy Weil, uh, we, we mentioned, so in the late 80s, he's going on this buying spree after the stock market goes down again. He buys... Um, uh, uh, Primerica, he buys Smith Barney as a brokerage, he buys an insurance company called A.L. Williams, and just quoting from the Monica Langley book here, having all these different companies gives gave him entry to every stratum of the American economy. Commercial credit catered to blue-collar workers hard-pressed for other sources of money. A.L. Williams sold insurance aimed squarely at the middle class. Smith Barney offered brokerage and money management service to the wealthy while also providing investment banking services for companies seeking to raise capital or do mergers and acquisitions. So, and that's the entire idea where he puts all these different companies together and suddenly he has uh, a conglomerate that's aimed at all these different sectors and strata of the American economy. So this very quickly becomes a machine for printing money and you know, this is the 80s, this is corporate consolidation, this is the government is not going to step in and hassle you if you are suppressing unions or anything, so this is a great time for him to be doing it. And these are billion-dollar acquisitions. Like in 87, or in 88, he paid $1.5 billion for Primerica, and in 89, he acquired Drexel Burnham. Like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars are being moved when he's merging these companies together. Right. And, you know, for any listeners who haven't uh, checked out our Michael Milken episode, that'll give you the full history of Drexel Burnham Lampert, which, uh, as Yoki mentioned, Sandy Weil buys out of bankruptcy in 1989. But Drexel Burnham Lampert went bankrupt because it was a massive criminal conspiracy that the government shut down. Uh, So he buys it out of bankruptcy for pennies of the dollar, and he gets all these thousands of hardened criminal brokers to join his brokerage firm. <laughs> like all of these guys who were, you know, working for a criminal conspiracy and suddenly mm-hmm. it gets shut down. They all join Sandy Wiles firm in 1989 and most of them eventually end up at what would become Citigroup. So when we talk about, you know, criminality at Citigroup, well, the guy hired thousands of criminals on the cheap uh, in 1989. Yeah. He, he uh, hired bagged and tagged a bunch of thugs, and then empowered them with wealth that they could not have at their previous companies. I mean, it's kind of genius. You've got to have dogs to fucking build your army. He hired them. Right, right. He he did the uh, Pablo Escobar thing, and he wrote Plomo or Platos on their contracts, <laughs> and they signed on the dotted line, and he got a bunch of fucking button men. Some of the his like lieutenants in city would later go on to uh, take part in the control frauds that led to the subprime meltdown in 2007 and 8. Oh, really? Yeah. We'll get to that in part three, I guess. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, and it is just something where uh, there's a New York Times article I I quoted from in part one where Sandy Weil kind of, the meltdown of Citigroup, his entire thing is, oh, if I was still the manager, I would have fixed it. 
but he just throws the other managers under the bus. But it's like, no, you set up this system and it blew up within two years of you leaving less than two years. It's a, it's Um, a huge institution. So it, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that he left before there were real problems. So like a huge institution takes like, I don't know, a decade to like change like a huge bank like that. Um, just because he wasn't there doesn't mean his presence wasn't felt as far as like the risk management of the company. Right. And, and that's the thing. Like the best defense you can summon up of this guy is that he didn't know all these crimes that were going on. But the thing is, like, you just look at the fact that we need a three part episode to cover Citigroup. <laughs> that's how much crime <laughs> we need three hours to get to just give you the cliff notes version of the amount of crime at Citigroup. And and yeah, like, so the best thing you can say for him is that he didn't know about WorldCom and Enron, which they were both involved in. He didn't know about the 2008 financial crisis, the mortgage fraud. He didn't know about um, they were uh, they were laundering money for Mexican drug cartels out of this Mexican bank that he bought in uh, 2000. So like, and the list goes on and on and on. So the best thing you can say about him is he had no idea what was going on, but it's kind of inevitable that when you set up a company this big that incorporates everything, at minimum, you're going to have divisions that you don't know what the fuck they're doing. But I I think he's certainly more culpable than he lets on, and I think he has a uh, convenient little excuse for his own actions. Yes, last episode I said his middle initial I was for indefensible. I think this time I'm going to go with (laughs) I for ignorant. Yeah, his his middle his middle initial stands for I do not recall, which is what his <laughs> lawyers told him to say under every deposition. He takes over these companies we mentioned in the 80s. He has access to every strata of the American economy. He puts in the usual playbook, you know, slash payrolls 10 or 15 percent, uh, slash out all the benefits so it sucks ass to work there, you know. Uh, cut everything to the bone, you know, throw them onto the public rules for health care, throw them onto a 401k instead of a defined benefit pension. Right. Um, but he also does things to maximize profit. So quoting from the Monica Langley book, after he sets up, you know, A.L. Williams, commercial credit, Smith Barney, uh, next on his agenda, uh, he was shocked to find that only one third of Smith Barney's retail customers bought stock, quote, on margin. That is borrowing money from Smith Barney to buy securities, which became the collateral for the loan. That's what I want, margin, Sandy told a group of executives. I can lend them money, be the bank, and have the best possible collateral, their stock portfolio. Interest generated on margin debt would increase profitability. If the value of the customer's portfolio declined and a margin call wasn't met, Smith Barney made itself whole by liquidating the assets in the customer's account to pay the debt. At Sandy's behest, Smith Barney launched a marketing campaign to encourage customers to borrow money against their portfolios to not just to buy securities, but also to buy consumer items, anything you normally get through the bank. So... Essentially, this Smith Barney's is a respected institution that's supposed to be helping people retire and make investments. And he's like slamming his brokers and telling them, no, you got to get on the phone and tell them to take out a loan with us. Take out a loan to buy stock. Take out a loan to buy a fridge. It doesn't matter because if they can't pay the loan, we can just fucking yank things out of their stock portfolio. We can just yank their retirement. So they are pushing people into debt and uh, loan shark. So this is like... These products are things that you would only ever offer, in, like a bank would only ever offer under more normal, um, less exuberant time periods to like extremely wealthy people who have basically no debt. But 
over the course of time, like stability breeds instability, right? So mm-hmm. eventually, um, after all of these series of mergers with insurance companies and other like prop trading firms and stuff, like Solomon Brothers, eventually, um, uh, these banks were offering these products to just anyone, and like they, they basically just ignored like what was right in front of them that it was too risky that's wild right and speaking of what was right in front of them you know we've we talked a lot on the previous episode about sandy wiles cost cutting uh this is you know an obsession of his but i did just like this anecdote so he takes over primerica uh and then he gets all the executives together to have a retreat and a strategy discussion and a part of this is he gives them this speech where he says, quote, good times are the best time to screw everything down. He urged them to be brutal with each unit's head count and pair every expense. Of course, head count means fire every employee you can. Right. Uh, we'll never have a quarter when, we fe- when we'll feel free to blow money away, Sandy assured them. Be disciplined. And then they went through a presentation as to what were their biggest expenses. And uh, near the top, I believe even number one, was aviation because of Sandy's personal Gulfstream 4 private jet and all the employees associated with flying that and the fuel costs. And so they actually brought this up to his face, you know, and they were just kind of joshing him a little bit, but he got extremely pissed at the suggestion that they should pare back his private jet, which apparently even the executives were not allowed to buy first class tickets. So this is a private jet for him and him only. And it was one of the largest expense items on it at his companies. But, you know, of course, he gives all these speeches about, you know, we got to be brutal with each unit's head count. I learned from uh, superyachtfan.com, my favorite site on billionaires, that uh, his yacht, April Fool, which is the day he met his wife, in it, it says that the $50 million Bombardier Global 6000 aircraft can adopt 16 passengers, and the jet is registered to Citigroup. So it mentions in on this website that the jet was registered to the company instead of him. <laughs> And this, uh, I don't know, probably adding to the problem, um, oil was oil price was a bit elevated at that time. Just throwing it out there. Right. But again, it's cost-cutting for thee, but not for me. Um, and uh, to continue the story, uh, Art Williams, it's just kind of a side anecdote, but we mentioned he bought this insurance company, A.L. Williams. The head Art Williams was actually charged by the FBI uh, around this time. Uh, They accused him of masterminding a, quote, dirty tricks campaign to, uh, or I think he was actually never actually charged, but he was accused uh, and investigated by the government for masterminding a, quote, dirty tricks campaign to drive a former employee's insurance company out of business by burying it with hundreds of bogus life insurance policy he uh, policies he allegedly ordered certain loyal agents whom he dubbed his spy teams and hit squads to infiltrate the competitors organization Amerishare Investors Incorporated of Jacksonville Florida and attack it from within by writing fictitious life policies and receiving generous commissions what so this is like one of uh, basically one of the people who's running one of the divisions within Sandy Wiles Empire was uh, sending out his agents to join the competitors and write up bogus life insurance policies and sabotage them from within. Um, but he has to resign over that. And actually, apparently half of his workforce quits because they were so loyal to him wow. uh, within that one particular life insurance division. But um, that's just kind of an example of the kind of people he had working for him. 
And again, when you have a boss who doesn't really give a shit about anything except for cost control and profits up, at minimum, you're going to get subordinates who are encouraged to take shortcuts and cook the books and engage in uh, less than savory or even illegal tactics to meet these targets. It's the pigs from Animal Farm all over again. You can't sleep inside, but I can. You can't buy first-class tickets, but I can have my own private jet registered mm. to Citigroup. I mean, it, <laughs> it's so blatantly, I'm better than you, so fuck you. It's interesting how the entire building of the brand that is, I'm a smart genius billionaire, doesn't really take that much accomplishment before you can kind of do whatever you want in Sanford, ignorant Wheelie's case. And the employees looked from Gulfstream 4 to Sandy Weil, and from Sandy Weil to Gulfstream 4 and back again, but they could no longer tell which was which. (laughs) 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 To continue the story, after he buys Primerica, he makes Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon is the... um, was his, at this point, protege. He's currently the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, also a billionaire. Uh, but Sandy Weil makes J.P. Diamond the um, uh, president and CFO of this new company, Primerica, which is part of his wider empire. But he also makes his uh, dipshit son, Sandy Weil's dipshit son, uh, VP, vice president of investments at this new Primerica company. So he has a multi-million dollar salary, um, which he... Mostly sends to Columbia <laughs> and yeah, Mar- uh, various spots around New York City. Mark Wheel is a tragic case of a man openly a abuser of cocaine on the street of Wall, if you know what I mean. Um, he leaves his job in 2000 for uh, rehab for a cocaine addiction and now has a website and Twitter and blog that doesn't get more hits than Grubstakers does, which is so fucking sad when you think about it. Like, obviously, this guy's a fail son, but at the same time, he's only got, like, 130 followers on Twitter. Like, that doesn't mean anything. Nobody should care about how many followers a person has, but at the same time, to be person that at one point managed billions of dollars and then to now tweet articles being like, it turns out that nutrition in poor neighborhoods is because they don't have access to food. Zero faves, zero retweets. It's like, oh, <laughs> just because you admitted that you were into cocaine too much and now nobody on Wall Street trusts you nearly as much as they should? Wild. Cut. Yogi, you just painted a bleaker picture than Citizen Kane. <laughs> billionaire's downfall to a 100 follower twitter account that just tweets out bland (laughs) poor neighborhood nutrition articles yeah i mean that's that's what it is i mean like uh to continue on if you dig you can find a uh, profile on forbes which is in pictures highlights of mark wales mineral collection because a man that loves crack rock also loves minerals apparently (laughs) and like He's got this, this like, and it's, it's, I mean, I don't know much about geology. I took acid at Sasquatch and didn't pass my classes, but, like, he's got blue tourmaline, a super rare gem blue species from Brazil. Uh, he got it for 450000 Today it's worth an ex- excess of 750000 He's got something called rhodochrosite. It uh, is from Sweet Home Mine, Co- I think, Colombia. It, uh, it's worth 850000 uh, some Tanzanite, relatively newfound gemstone, first discovered in the 70s in Tanzania. It's 
now we're Tanzania? 350 grand. T-A-N-Z-A-N-I-A. Tanzania, is, I think I think you're right. But I mean, like, motherfucker just collects rocks. And, like, you know, not like your aunt cr- collects crystals and they make her feel better and not have bad dreams at night. I mean, like, this man has spent hundreds of thousands of dollars of minerals. And, like, he got some pyrite from Peru. Uh, the best pieces is worth around 175000 Like, he spent... You know, between 150. I mean, like, the man just loves buying rocks. And you know what? When you're the son of a billionaire and and people fucking don't fuck with you anymore, you just go into the rock game. If you know what I mean. Maybe maybe he had a pet rock when he was little. <laughs> it would be funny if that was like an actual strategy his therapist set him up with to get over his addiction to crack rock. <laughs> like, what if what if you just go to South America and. Uh, rob native governments no one's drug addiction should be uh penalized uh but i will say that it just seems so fucking wild to me that he had to leave his position overseeing the 113 billion investment portfolio (laughs) after erratic behavior at business functions and amid a battle with cocaine addiction which was reported in the Wall Street Journal in, t- in November of 2000. He relapses and he tries to smoke a $150,000 mineral. <laughs> <laughs> puts it directly in the, crap, the crack pipe and destroys a priceless artifact. I mean, both him and his sister seem to have been given jobs through his father's their father's connections. And Jessica Biblowitz has not dealt with uh, the the crack addiction that her brother has been famously ousted for. And she, from a New York Post article, uh, she's now, from this from 99 actually, she's 39 in 1999. And at that time she became the chief executive officer of National Financial Partners, a Leon Black-backed firm that manages money for rich Mm. people. So, like, you know, I'm sure that these people graduated from whatever schools they went to with honors or whatever, but... The moment they were eligible, they had an opportunity to work on Wall Street at a capacity that nobody in their uh, class would have been able to because of their father connections. And the fact that, you know, Mark Wheel was like, I'm fucking doing crack too much is indicative of how not only are billionaires and the elite genius, they're not geniuses, but their fail sons are more regular than we would ever believe. And the idea that legacy is somehow... uh, more than the fact that they come from money is bullshit. I like that Jessica is working for Leon Black, who, uh, if you listen to our episode on billionaire Leon Black, you will know, gave $10 million to Jeffrey Epstein, and nobody knows why. Typically, the children are worse than the father in these episodes when we research them. At least the elder whale was like, he, I mean, his job is to fire people in mass or delete their benefits. And that takes, um, for most people, that's a skill that you have to work on where you just don't care about ruining thousands of people's lives. And then other people, though, they're just a natural at it. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of wondering what was the case for him. He seems like he's enough of a psychopath to where it just came naturally. So, yeah, he hires both of his kids, Mark and Jessica, and gives them these multi-million dollar salaries while he's, you know, slashing everybody else and throwing everybody else up on the curb. Like, he he doesn't even need 
he's a multimillionaire in his own right. These kids don't have to work. They don't have to draw on company resources. Uh, but again, it's the same thing with his Gulfstream jet. It's all just hypocrisy, and it's all just uh, the media and the business press allow him to present this image of himself as a genius when in reality he's, I mean, just a dirty hypocrite who doesn't give a shit about his employees or anything uh, but his own bottom line and those of uh, the shareholders. His relationship with uh, Jamie Dimon became tarnished because of a uh, promotion for his daughter that wasn't given, right, Sean? Right, yeah. So Jessica, so Mark is the one with a cocaine addiction. I also believe, like, I think there was a New York Post headline about how he had, like, a stripper. Uh, I don't know if it was a baby mama or something. But there was also, like, strippers and stuff involved. in. So it was like a tabloid scandal. One other thing, he had a divorce from uh, Edie Hill, the Fox News reporter. Uh, she's mm. Edith, uh, her name's Edith something Hill. Um, but they have a child together, and um, there's, like, clips of uh, Edie Hill, uh, one of them being, like, some guy from Australia putting her in a dunk tank, like, uh, throwing the ball, and so she, she hits and falls. But then the other thing that they, they put in, which I'll put it in, 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 uh, in the post here, is at one point she says, uh, was Obama's Tiger Woods fist pump a terrorist fist pump? And she had to <laughs> apologize for saying that. Uh, so, you know, it. Uh, at one point, Mark Wheel was hooking up with a lady that said Obama's fist pump could have been a terrorist fist pump, which she apologized for. A fist bump, a pound, a terrorist fist jab. The gesture everyone seems to interpret differently. We'll show you some interesting body communication and find out what it really says. Start the show by clarifying something I said on the show last Friday about an upcoming body language segment. Now, I mentioned various ways the Obama's fist pump in St. Paul had been characterized in the media. I apologize because, unfortunately, some thought I personally had characterized it inappropriately. I regret that. It was not my intention. And I certainly didn't mean to associate the word terrorist in any way with Senator <laughs> Obama and his wife. Tiger, I, uh, I liked what you did with the USS Cole. Put her there. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and Mark Wheel, if you are listening, uh, I will sell you a hundred Twitter followers for a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> I think you can you can easily break a thousand, and my rates are very reasonable. You can I want, host the show. I want some for of your uncut half gems. A million. I want one of we Mark Wheel's rocks that he's not willing to give up for a fucking <laughs> appearance on the show. I know you got it, Mark. Just pay an influencer like ten thousand dollars to promote you or something. That bothers me. That he has so few followers. Because he doesn't give a fuck, Stephen. I think that one thing I've, I've never been able to process until recently was that every, like, I don't know, let's say 10% of billionaire kids got some sort of conscious. Like when we did the David Green story, the Hobby Lobby CEOs, one of their sons didn't clap when they won the Supreme Court ruling because he was like, I know what the fuck we just did. And I think with Mark Wheel, he, you know... <laughs> He was like, I don't want to fucking be this guy anymore. And I can't kill myself because I got, like, you know, you know, appearances and reputations to maintain and stuff. <laughs> who, who will water my rocks? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, like, I, I have, like, I geodes do, and shit that I need to take care of, so. <laughs> I do think that there is some amount of conscience that billionaire kids can occasionally have. But I don't know. Maybe I'm being too nice on them. Hmm. But uh, so, yeah, Jessica didn't his uh, Sandy Wheels daughter, Sandy Wiles daughter, Jessica didn't have a drug problem, but she was kind of a, 
a dipshit employee. So he ends up hiring her and uh, she reports to Jamie Dimon, as we mentioned, you know, the president and CFO of this conglomerate. And Jamie Dimon passes her over for promotion. And that's eventually what uh, frays the relationship between Jamie Dimon and his mentor, Sandy Weil. Uh, but we'll get to that in just one second. Um, in, in 1992, uh, Sandy Wilde buys traveler's insurance. And this is made possible because of Hurricane uh, Andrew hits Florida in 1992, and traveler's insurance has to make a huge payout. And financially, it's in trouble for a minute there. Mm-hmm. So he's able to go in. Uh, Sandy Wilde's able to go in and buy traveler's insurance. Uh, he makes a visit to Hartford, to their headquarters uh, in Connecticut, and he de- uh, he'd already demanded a huge amount of job cuts in order to take it over. It was actually like a strategy where at first he didn't own it outright. He buys, I believe, like twenty eight percent or something like that. But he becomes, you know, de facto influential enough to take it over eventually. It's it's like when Hitler carved up Czechoslovakia. We all know he's going to take over the whole thing, but he doesn't take it all over at once. Right, from the uh, genealogy uh, website, it says that he pays $722 million to buy a 27% share of Traveler's Insurance. And then in 93, after a few more acquisitions, he completely takes over Traveler's Corp. in a $4 billion stock deal and officially begins calling his corporation Traveler's Group Incorporated. Right. So, yeah, he, like Yogi said, he put about $722 million in there. Uh, he demands 3,300 jobs be slashed as a condition for his investment. And then he flies out there and says, we got to slash another 1,700 <laughs> jobs. So he gets this deal, and then he's like, no, we got to cut more jobs. Fucking ruthless. Uh, so, again, this is his MO. Is he not just, like, cutting out the fat too much and then merging and or selling the company even though they can't really operate in their current state <laughs> is that not what what kindly is going on it's like i'm gonna buy playstation 4s and i'm gonna take out the memory the disc reader and a few other things and i'm gonna sell it to sean as a discount on used but then once he gets it, then I'm like, oh, sorry, bro, that shit don't work. I, I'm This is yours now, buddy. You know what I mean? Like, it just seems like he he's stripping companies and getting rid of them before anyone notices. Steven? Like, tell that to the middle managers at those firms who are left to deal with, like, all of the same work, but with fewer people. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no, to complete Yogi's analogy, he's like selling you a PS4 controller. Like, you only need one of these joysticks, bro. <laughs> you only need, you don't need the, the square button. You just use the X button most of the time. Yeah, all the pros use it without the triggers. No triggers, just one stick and half of the buttons. Um, but yeah, so the Travelers takeover, though, we should mention, he also, in this time period, this is the early 90s, uh, he goes on another acquisition spree because this is kind of his M.O. He uh, slashes his books to the bone and then he just waits for the he, economy to tank. And then he hands you he, a Mad Cat's controller. Right. <laughs> like when when the economy goes bad, then suddenly a bunch of acquisition targets come up. And in fact, we're, of course, seeing this with this current coronavirus crisis. And y- you have to imagine there will be. Lots of buyouts of big companies, particularly ones that are getting bailout money from the federal government, are going to go snap up smaller companies uh, 
perhaps that are not getting bailout money or not getting as much bailout money from the federal government. So economic distress is always a good time to go on a buying spree and get discounts and buy things for pennies on the dollar. But uh, he also buys this, or he rebuys Shearson. Um, we mentioned it briefly on the previous episode. In the 1970s, before he got bought out by American Express, he took over a brokerage firm named Shearson Hamill and Company. He merged it with his own company. Uh, they were they had office space in the World Trade Center for a bit, mm-hmm. and then uh, he merged the entire conglomerate. He sold it to American Express. So he moved into American Express and he moved on, but. He was able to, in the early 90s, I believe around the same time, 92, 93, 93. he rebuys Shearson. So he buys this thing, he sells it to American Express, he gets kicked out of American Express, but then he buys it back. Yes, for $1.2 billion. Uh, the story is, again, from the Monica Langley book. Sandy had sh- sold Shearson to American Express in 1981 for uh, $930 million. Then American Express more than doubled its brokerage force by purchasing Lehman Brothers and E.F. Hutton and spent billions of dollars more on the unit. Shearson also had built two state-of-the-art office buildings in downtown Manhattan, valued at more than $600 million. Now Sandy was set to buy this much larger company and all its real estate, all for about a billion dollars. Wow. So... He gets a steal on this thing because the executives had run up the credit card a bit too much over there, and he's able to buy it for only about $100 more than American Express bought it from him a decade ago with all this added value on its books. So he he manages to get several different steals throughout his career. I'll sell it to you for $2. I'll buy it back from you for $2.10, but it's actually worth $5 now. Essentially. (laughs) And then... uh, before we move on to travelers, I do just want to note the there's like an odd anecdote in this book about he has lunch with Jamie Dimon's secretary, um, and the secretary uh, assured her that Sandy was indeed inviting her to lunch and set the date for them. Uh, but then she warned her, quote, don't be nervous if people look at you strangely when you walk in, unquote. Why, she asked tentatively, because Sandy doesn't have lunch with women, unquote. <laughs> Um, and, you know, this is just <laughs> corporate America in the 80s, but he was also a member of the Augusta National Golf Club, which didn't admit women until very recently, actually. Yeah, all those men are on Mike Pence-style rules. If your wife isn't the one sitting next to you, you in trouble, son. Yeah, people are still like that, actually, in corporate America and Congress. Yeah, I mean, well, it... It's indicative of like it was uh, like two like like two years ago was there was like some senators like I don't want to be in the same room with a woman without another woman present or something right so yeah Sandy Weil is uh like an avid golfer as well as you know many of these people are so he was a member of the Augusta National Golf Club and Augusta National Golf Club didn't admit women until 2012 uh so very wow. recently and. It's just funny, this is the biography, the Monica Langley biography, it's rather sympathetic towards him, uh, probably because it was written before the 2008 financial crisis. Uh, but so, this is written in 2004, and it explains him staying a member of the Augusta National Golf Club, even despite all these protests by women organizations, by female organizations, women's organizations. Uh, it explains him staying a member uh, because he's working to change it from the inside. <laughs> That's right. Wow. We can. 
And, uh, you know, he really, really put the screws on and it took them another decade to adjust the policy. But yeah, I mean, it's just a thing where it's just a thing where you see this with like all sorts of organizations that do wrong, where people who like, I don't want to quit. I like being in the little exclusive, no women, you know, club. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to lobby to change it from the inside. And then when the people who run it say, no, fuck off, I'm going to say, no, all right, well. I tried. <laughs> I'm not associated with this, but I'm going to still golf here and uh, go here for all my vacations. That's like this podcast. And have Citigroup sponsor the thing. <laughs> to return to the uh, takeover of Traveler's Insurance, uh, we mentioned he slashes all these jobs. Uh, he apparently, he did, ke- however, keep the Traveler's helicopter. He apparently loved zooming from his home in Greenwich to Hartford in the uh, Sikorsky aircraft, considered uh, one of the best uh, styles of corporate choppers all, ar- all around. Uh, so he, he did, this guy has been drinking and smoking cigars his entire life and getting on helicopters after he lays off 20% of the workforce in every company he takes over. So he's been, uh, he's been rolling, you know, triple sixes for his entire life so far <laughs> and uh, hasn't stumbled once. I mean, this is the type of life you get to lead when you're not someone who's notorious for uh, having sex with children and getting caught. I mean, if you just focus on the job, then you can just live a lavish lifestyle, even though your job is fucking over people constantly. And if you're not caught having sexual relations with minors or people that are your uh, subordinates, then you can also be someone that drinks gin every day, eats steak, then tells your employees that they're not good enough to have coffee at work. Mm-hmm. This is karma. He's like he could definitely he could definitely be in a child sex ring, but as far as we can tell, he's not directly. Mm-hmm. And um, you know what? Um, uh, like this is he's being rewarded like cosmically. <laughs> yeah, because he's been on he's been on helicopter rides. Like sounds like couple times a week or so for several years and nothing happened see this is because he do, he befriended tiger woods and as long <laughs> as you're friendly with tiger woods tiger woods will not d- sabotage your helicopter so that's the first step if you want to be a, a helicopter passenger uh traveler's insurance when he takes it over we mentioned this had you know more than 130 year history with the red umbrella and all that so all of these kind of i shouldn't say all of but many of the old companies in america have a particular corporate culture where, quoting from the Monica Langley book, uh, uh, one of the employees at Travelers said, working at Travelers was always very paternalistic. As long as you kept your nose clean, you could work here forever. Now it's, what is your worth? What are you producing? Mm. And so he puts, you know, we mentioned all the layoffs, but he sends, you know, one of his deputies out there to do the, the standard... Sandy Weil MO where like for example they find out the fountain is leaking and it's going to cost X thousand dollars to replace it so he's like no nah, fuck uh, his uh, Sandy Weil's deputy says no fuck that take the fountain out and put some dirt and put a tree in it just put like a, fi- <laughs> a $20 tree in wow. the employee fountain so there's no water fountain at the job anymore because <laughs> uh, you know they don't want to spend I think it was like 60 grand they quoted it at because uh, there was water damage or something yeah, I, I don't an know amount exactly that why. they could afford very easily to fix a fucking water fountain 
I, as a person who has seen water scarcity in their life to a very uh, scary degree, hate the notion of water fountains. But the fact that a guy that's a billionaire and is acquiring companies for hundreds of millions of dollars is like a water feature. Uh uh-uh. My employees don't need to see water moving. They can't be relaxed on their breaks. I need them to see a shitty tree. <laughs> well, like during the negotiate, like he's willing to like spend more than 60,000 on the negotiations concerning the fountain. <laughs> and he's just like, okay, well, what if we just have stagnant water? You know, they can still have water. Was, it's not running. There was like, so there was also a tower like in the travelers building that local girl scout cr- troops would take field trips to. So they mm-hmm. could look at the tower and see, you know, throughout, uh, Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, and he shut down the tower, but then had to reopen it because there was such community outrage <laughs> That this fucking asshole was, like, telling the Girl Scouts to fuck off, basically. Wild. Um, Yeah, and I'll just, like, and again, you know, we could go through these anecdotes all day. I I hope they're illustrative of the general MO whenever this guy takes over any company, which he's taken over a lot of. He transforms them from a company where, like, the, the Traveler's employees said, you could work there your entire life. You could retire with uh, decent benefits as long as you did the right thing. He turns these all into companies where you could be thrown out on your ass at any moment and all of your benefits are slashed to shit and your job sucks and is stressful and is overworking. And again, I think any American worker listening to this could relate. Uh, But here's uh, one last story from Travelers, the takeover. The guy, uh, his deputy, Lip, when he goes out there, L-I-P-P was his name. He was the guy who's running Travelers for Sandy Weil. Mm -hmm. Uh, When he he crossed the three-story all-glass rotunda, a charming woman who appeared to be in her 50s offered to hang up Lip's coat. What a waste of money, he thought. When he found out that she was paid $20 an hour, he replaced her with a $10 an hour security guard with a gun. The abrupt disappearance of the hostess, who knew everyone's name, touched a raw nerve among employees. Chuck Clark, who early in Lip's tenures at Travelers had warned about, uh, warned him about undermining the culture, now scolded him again. You're cutting the innards out of the place. She was a fabulous lady, one of us, part of our culture. So, you know, he just <laughs> throws a woman who takes the coats, who's been working there probably decades, right. just throws her out on, the, on her ass and replaces her with a guy with a gun who makes half as much. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is the Sandy Wild playbook. I can't believe you can pay a man less to have a gun and stand in your building than you can to have someone be polite and take people's coats off. I mean, there's really nothing more American than courtesy costs twice as much as a man with a gun. It sounds like she's doing a bit more than just um, taking people's coats. I mean, everyone said they loved her, so. Right. Yeah, no, the coat lady was like, look, I'll, I'll get a firearm permit. I can have a gun. <laughs> I, you don't need to yeah, cut I'll get my, my job. Ice. I can take coats and have a gun. <laughs> <laughs> no, but people like that are She's the a- glue of a business. They they make sure that everyone that's working there is, you know, I mean, most jobs that I didn't leave because they sucked were because they there were people there that made it worth it. The suffering was not nearly 
uh, as traumatic as wanting to leave to fuck over the other people I was working with. And I think most people deal with this, where people don't really leave bad jobs. They leave bad managers and bad work environments. I'm yeah, pretty sure. willing to do a shitty job if everybody I work with is kind of awesome. And a person like this individual seems like somebody that held together that place in the normalcy that they had, and now they have to look at fucking Bob, the man with the gun. <laughs> Well, yeah, and again, this is the kind of the theme of these episodes. This is a transition in American capitalism where people used to be able to work for a company like Travelers their entire career, but now, you know, people in America leave their jobs every two or three years. Well, these, like, these anecdotes serve as, like, some micro-level examples of what was going on in the larger economy as a switch from defined, defined benefits to defined contributions writ large. Mm-hmm. So like it wasn't um, that wasn't just for people like switching from pension funds to four hundred one k's, which is where that which is where those terms came from. But like um, the neoliberal turn in late seventies to eighties, going up to now. So like my whole life, um, our whole lives is like can at least as far as how businesses are conducted, can be characterized in this way. Of like getting rid of security, any any type of security beyond just like you're there and you get a wage while you're there is like uh, stripped away. Hmm. You were asking earlier about like him being invited to, you know, Epstein sex parties and i was thinking this biography talks so much about how he like never shuts the fuck about up about business and Citigroup and the stock market so i like have to imagine they were like no that guy's too annoying let's <laughs> let's just keep him off of lolita island so it's just a complete accident that he's not on the flight logs because he could just never shut the fuck up about the stock ticker. <laughs> he like he doesn't Wait. seem to have any interest except for uh, companies and next quarter's profits and then uh, the, all the articles that are written about him in retirement are like yeah he still watches Citigroup stock excessively he doesn't know what to do with himself except for follow this fucking stock market and he entirely defines himself his life his entire worth as a human being based on these arbitrary numbers what if he was in he was invited to Epstein's um, one of Epstein's compounds but he kept like telling him how he could save money <laughs> and he's just like, like you don't have to have three girls in here. You can have just two or something. <laughs> yeah, I noticed yeah, you're you paying can... a 22-year-old French girl, but I'm pretty sure you could get two 12-year-olds for the same price. Yeah. Epstein's like, no, I can't fire the coat girl. She's a co-conspirator. <laughs> How many times do I have to tell you? These people are involved in serious <laughs> crimes. They we have a culture. We, we want to maintain a culture here. <laughs> yeah. Like he just, he didn't care about that. God, as I realize it, Jeffrey Epstein's uh, blackmail empire is like the last American corporation to really have <laughs> lifetime employment with benefits uh, and a cradle to grave employment uh, guarantee in the U.S. economy. Sandy calls Jeffrey Epstein's cell phone and it goes to voicemail and Sandy's just like, Jeff, I, I, I know you've heard this from me before, but I'm telling you, you can fire that Ghislaine Maxwell girl and 
Kyle hired a couple of guys with guns. I'm telling you, I've done this before. It's it's a strategy that works. You just get a, a few mooks with guns. It's just as good as a good-looking lady that takes your coat on. I promise you, it'll work out. Uh, calling Jeffrey Epstein from a 1930s uh, gangster film. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, yeah, I, I have to get back on set, see? <laughs> but yeah, and so uh, at Traveler's Insurance, he apparently sells uh, out of health insurance. Sandy Weil has a meeting with Hillary Clinton, and he tells the other executives, quote, she wants us to insure everybody whether we make money or not. This is when they were trying to get the Hillary Care thing passed. It, of course, crashed and burned. But he sold out of Traveler's Health Insurance, and um, it also might have been because uh, from the Monica Langley book, uh, travelers became enmeshed in dozens of lawsuits accusing the insurance company of denying benefits. Uh, several courts had ruled that regardless of what the health insurance policy stated, travelers and other insurance companies would be required to pay dozens of claims for experimental chemotherapy for breast cancer victims. Wow. So this is also famous cost cutter Sandy Weil is saying, no, fuck off. I'm not paying for your chemotherapy. Uh, you can go die. And actually several courts forced him to pay for chemotherapy, so he gets out of the health insurance business. But this is a, a model that is sadly still with us today in the United States. What a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we mentioned his daughter uh, working for Jamie Diamond. Uh, uh, his daughter, Sandy Wiles' daughter, Jessica, becomes executive vice president under Jamie Diamond. Uh, like her brother, they're drawing multi-million dollar salaries under pure nepotism. Um, and Jamie Diamond, like, thinks she's good on TV. She apparently goes on TV a lot to promote Sandy Wiles' companies, and she's a good interviewer, so she gets invited on a lot of these programs. But Jamie Diamond doesn't think she really has it, or doesn't think she understands the analytics and the numbers well enough. He doesn't really think she's that good of an employee. Um, under Jessica, and then quoting from the book, under Jessica's administration, Smith Barney's mutual funds weren't attracting new investment dollars as fast as many competing fund companies. This was due, at least in part, to subpar performance of the funds, which were noticeably lagging behind the results of similar funds offered by competitors. So in 1997, Jamie Dimon passes her over for promotion, and then Sandy Weil starts a permanent feud, or no, not in 1997. First, Jamie Dimon passes her pr over for promotion, then she quits in 1997, uh, and then this kind of starts a feud between Jamie Dimon and Sandy Weil. This is uh, jumping ahead slightly, but uh, from an article in Deal Breaker uh, the, from 2019, it says that Sandy Weil regrets destroying Jamie Dimon's ability to ever open up and trust a bank CEO again. Uh, this is a quote from Sandy. I, I wish Jamie and I had been able to work out our issues and that it didn't have to end up in a breakup because it was a very good relationship, Wheel said. Diamond was fired by Wheel shortly after the Travelers and Citigroup merger in 98, abruptly ending a 15-year partnership that saw them build a financial services empire like no other at the time. I mean, Sandy knows he fucks up, but also, what, is he going to fucking throw his daughter to the wolves because she sucks? No. The man is a psychopath. Right. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's just something where I just hate that he's able to present himself in the press like, uh, 
you know, I had to slash the salaries and I yeah. had to fucking deny the chemotherapy payments to the dying women who had breast cancer. I had to do that for the health of the company. I'm, I don't have emotions. I just think about the health of the company. And me and Lyle were like, yeah, you have to pay my dipshit fail daughter three million a year and uh, make sure to gas up my uh, my Gulfstream 4 with premium uh, on Let It. None of this fucking uh, halfway shit. I want I want the good stuff and I want I want the best chef on board. Uh at least at least three Michelin stars. Minimum. If if I don't have a glass with gin in it, I will beat the shit out of everyone <laughs> in the room. I don't care who they are or who they work for. I have several men with guns in my car that have replaced women that were pleasant to me. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do you know how much it costs me to get a man with a gun here? Just $10 an hour. <laughs> you don't want to fuck with me, okay? Uh, but yeah, so, and part of what this is, his feud with Jamie Dimon. Jamie Dimon has been his protege, his right-hand man throughout this entire time since his exile in the early 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, Jamie Dimon's been there, and then Jamie Dimon passes his daughter over for, for promotion, uh, and then we get to this merger that creates Citigroup, which is kind of the meat of it we're getting into. it. But before this happens, he tells Jamie Dimon, you're not going to be on the board of the new company. And oh. then he schemes with uh, John Reed, was the other CEO of what became Citigroup. He schemes with him to push out Jamie Dimon, ostensibly for getting into an argument with uh, another executive at a party, at a company party, but really because he passed over his daughter. So... You know, they push out a guy who, by the rules of the game, clearly knows what he's doing and goes on to take over J.P. Morgan Chase for completely petty reasons. But we can get into, again, the meat of the episode and really why this guy is relevant, which is the repeal of Glass-Steagall. Just to remind the listeners, Glass-Steagall is a 1933 law passed in the United States which uh, separated commercial from investment banks, you know, banks that take deposits, can't merge with uh, banks that do proprietary trading. It also prevents banks from entering the securities and insurance business. So mm. he has traveler's insurance. He wants to merge it with Citibank. Um, and then his lawyers come up with kind of a weird workaround where they say, if you can get the Federal Reserve to cl- classify Citibank as a bank holding company, not a bank, then you have two to five years before you have to disentangle these two. So they're like, so Sandy Weil approaches the CEO of Citibank, uh, John Reed, and he says, hey, my lawyers came up with this strategy. We'll merge, we'll be co-CEOs, and then we have two to five years to get Congress to change the law. (laughs) And if they don't, then we just have to break up. But, you know, so this is just entirely a play to be like, Let's just do this merger and then let's lobby the shit out of Congress and see if it works. And in fact, you know, one of the first calls he makes when he's considering this is directly to Federal Reserve Chairman at the time, Alan Greenspan. So Sandy Weil lobbies him directly to be like, hey, could you classify us as a bank holding company? Can you do this weird workaround that was clearly not the way the law was intended? And of course, the Federal Reserve under Alan Greenspan goes along with this plan. I mean, he just finds a loophole and exploits it to the nth degree. But from what it sounds like, it would be like two sports teams being like, we're going to pretend to merge, and if they say we can't, then fuck it, but we'll just put our best players on one team and then take over the fucking league. I mean, I know that's a very, uh, like, 
uh, not not at all linear way to look at it, but it seems to me that they're breaking the rules and not getting caught. They're breaking the rules and then choosing to misuse the laws in place to allow themselves to prosper from it. So that ended up being a $76 billion merger between wow. Travelers and Travelers and Citicorp. Uh, they they ended up doing a, a let's call it a stock split where um the like all of the travelers stock would become city group stock at like a certain rate and at the time of the merger the stock price i kind of charted out the stock price versus like important events in the company's history nice um we'll get we'll get to it i guess more in part 3 but just for now like the stock price at the time of the merger was at about like two two hundred or so, and within one year, it post merger it reached about three fifty. Holy, yeah. It took about a year and a half, maybe, but it went from two hundred or so to three fifty, and I think like investors were sort of. Um, buying into the idea that maybe Glass-Steagall would be in on its way out. Like, uh, this wasn't the first time people have thought about repealing Glass-Steagall. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been, there's like the, the super wealthy have like, from the moment it was passed in 1933 with the banking act, um, they just launched basically like an intergenerational campaign to one day eventually get rid of Glass-Steagall. And uh, I guess uh, Whale Whale decided to take a risk, basically, and say like, "Well, it is still the law for now, but I don't know. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot. We have a lot more allies who want it gone. So, um, with the holding company, at least it gives us like five years to see if we can um, uh, lobby the shit of Congress, like Sean said. Right. Mm. Right, and so. Uh, like Steve was mentioning there, this merger was uh, announced in April 1998. It was at the time the largest merger in U.S. corporate history up to that time. Uh, so it's announced April 1998, and then in uh, the year 2000, Glass-Steagall's repealed. So like right when the two-year limit's about to expire, they put the lobbying into overdrive. Um, and we should just mention briefly, he also buys Solomon Brothers in 1997, but that's kind of a, uh, it's relevant, but it's a smaller part of the larger picture. Um, Citibank, as it was called, was originally founded as Citicorp by the Rockefeller family in 1812. So it has a very long history, um, but he's he convinces the CEO, John Reed, to do this. And then he actually calls his old partner, we mentioned in part one, one of his first business partners was Arthur Levitt, who was mm-hmm. at this time the chairman of the SEC the Securities and Exchange uh, Commission. This is supposed to be the cop regulating Wall Street. He calls them to be like, hey, we're doing this uh, clearly illegal merger. That's cool, right? And, of course, his old partner says, yeah, we're not going to do anything about it. What do, what do we look like? Some sort of government enforcement <laughs> arm that is supposed to prevent criminal activity from the banks? You severely misunderstand the function of this agency. But so, yeah, his regulator is his old business partner, his old buddy, and he calls him. 
he calls Greenspan, and he actually gets former President Gerald Ford to lobby for this. Um, quoting from the Monica Langley book, Gerald Ford is, uh, spent his life as a career politician who never had much money. Ford, been had a, ha, Ford had been a director of Sandy's growing empire for years and felt a great loyalty to Sandy for making him rich with stock for his board service. So he made a former president rich, and suddenly that former president is calling people in Washington, being like, hey, you should help my buddy out with this Glass-Steagall repeal thing. Mm -hmm. So that's a big part of it. Another thing, so Gerald Ford was the Republican they had, and then Robert Rubin, Secretary of Treasury during Clinton's administration, was the Democratic side that he recruited to take down Glass-Steagall. And he, this is the man that has a wood... Uh, frame engraved with the phrase the shatterer of Glass-Steagall and from this genealogy website it says that Wheel denies that the repeal of Glass-Steagall played a role in the recent financial crisis so the motherfucker not only prospered from this but when pressed on hey do you think this hurt the economy he's like no I don't see why it would do that at all it just made me and my friends a whole bunch of money say <laughs> Yeah, and so they do this merger in 1998, and as Yogi mentioned, uh, Robert Rubin was the famous Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton. Actually, you know, we talk about Wall Street bailouts, so we'll explore this more in a future episode, but there was another bailout in the 90s called Long-Term Capital Management. It was a hedge fund that went bust and got bailed out uh, under the direction of Robert Rubin as Bill Clinton's Treasury Secretary. Um, and, of course, the Clinton administration lobbies to repeal Glass-Steagall, and then Robert Rubin goes and cashes in and makes millions of dollars as, uh, um, I believe, chairman uh, at Citigroup on the board, working part-time. Um, and, and we'll discuss that in just a second. But they do this merger in 98, and then when it comes to the year uh, 2000, if it's not repealed by then, um, th this would have to break up. If Glass-Steagall's not repealed by 2000, it would have to break up. So he has all this lobbying power on his side. But uh, according to the Monica Langley book, one of the people who really pushes it over the edge is Jesse Jackson. Um, so the, the book talks about how Sandy is lobbying for the legislation. He called on Treasury officials and congressional leaders, often accompanied by other financial executives. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't hurt that all of them are making huge financial donations to these congressional officials and legislators. You know, the financial service industry is really just unleashed for donations throughout the 1990s. And they, um, in Jesse Jackson's case, they use nonprofit and charities as kind of like the fulcrum to mm. influence him. Right. If I'm not and, mistaken. You know, just yeah. Right. And yeah, just continuing from the Monica Langley book, um, he played his most important trump card. Years earlier, with no fanfare, Sandy had founded a charity aimed at training inner-city high school students for jobs in the financial industry. The gesture, a nod to the difficulties Sandy had experienced breaking into the deeply discriminatory, discriminatory finance business, attracted the attention of Jesse Jackson, the outspoken civil rights leader who recruited Sandy as the first co-chairman of his own fledgling Wall Street project, an effort to create more diversity within the big banks and brokerages. During the past six years, the white Jewish mogul and the African-American Christian activist had become friends and mutual allies in various projects, including the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, uh, the acclaimed modern dance troupe consisting mostly of black performers for which Sandy's wife served as a chairwoman. Uh, served as chairwoman. Now Jackson came to the defense of his old friend. He met with um, uh, the Republican Senator Phil Graham from Texas, 
privately to tell the committee chairman that he would support a watered-down version of the community reinvestment provision, uh, a move to signal to other consumer groups to follow his lead. Uh, and the Community Reinvestment Act is an act that passed Congress that uh, required banks to verify, to make more loans to low-income neighborhoods and provide documentation that they were doing this. Republicans were like, hey, we want to get rid of this as part of Glass-Steagall. Jesse Jackson meets with Phil Graham and says, okay, I will talk to my some community groups and I will lobby to say, hey, let's water this down so that we can get Glass-Steagall repealed. And that's the compromise they eventually ended up at. After the pressure that Whale and um, other banking insurance industry executives were able to put uh, on various Congress members, including, unfortunately, uh, Jesse Jackson, um, they're eventually able to uh, get the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, which um, was aimed at repealing the Glass-Steagall bill, into consideration in um, late 1999. Um, it was eventually signed into law on November 12, 1999. But um, there's kind of a buildup where um, there's a there's a debate in the House of Reps. Um, Representative John Dingell of Michigan argued that the bill would result in banks becoming, quote, too big to fail. Hmm. Dingell further argued that this would necessarily sort of result in a bailout by the federal government. Quite prescient, I would say. Yeah. Um, the House went on to pass its version of what's called the Financial Services Act of 1999 on July 1st, 1999. Um, a bipartisan vote, 340. Um Overall, 343 to 86. Two months after the Senate had already passed its version of the bill on May 6th in a much narrower vote, 54-44. There was like, I mean, there was some sort of finagling over some, some, some specifics, but overall it was kind of like, it was seen as sort of this like common sense bipartisan thing eventually hmm. which is unfortunate because yeah. like uh, i mean as you can see like representative dingle was basically laying out like what would happen nine year nine years later <laughs> right like so there were late night negotiations again according to the monica langley book uh, apparently sandy Weil placed a call directly to bill clinton late at night to tell him that the bill was uh, the bill coveted by wall street was on the verge of collapse and needed him to compromise which is of course we mentioned you know the kind of watering down of the community reinvestment act that was part of it was the compromise that the democrats reached with the republicans because this is the American Labor Party is like our compromises. <laughs> we'll water down our uh, low income loans program uh, just to get Wall Street repeal. And that's a real uh, Wall Street regulation repeal. Uh, that's a real win for American workers. Um, but uh, from the book, apparently John Reed and Sandy Weil are at this point co-CEOs of Citigroup. They don't really get along that well, but they issue a joint statement praising Washington for, quote, liberating our financial companies from an antiquated regulatory structure to unleash the creativity of our industry and ensure global competitiveness. And unleash the creativity of our industry, it certainly did, uh, just about eight years later. Um, and, of course... 
this uh, leg- legislation being repealed allows J.P. Morgan to merge with Chase, now becomes J.P. Morgan Chase, and you see a lot of these other mergers where uh, these banks get so big that by the time of 9-11, Citigroup controls one in every five credit card transactions done in the United States. Like, one in every five credit card transactions in the U.S. at about the year 2001 is done through Citigroup or a subsidiary. Uh, so these things get very huge, very quickly. Um, and we mentioned Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin during the Clinton administration. Uh, right after this Glass-Steagall repeal, uh, Clinton becomes, or sorry, Robert Rubin is hired, and he becomes quote a Citigroup director, chair, a chairman of the executive committee, and a member of the newly created Office of the Chairman. Uh, Rubin, already a wealthy man as a result of his career at Goldman Sachs, would go from the 150000 he earned as Treasury Secretary to a combined package of salary, bonus, and stock options worth at least $33 million a year for part-time wow. work. Uh, but yeah, I, and I mean, like, this is just so fucking crooked and corrupt to the core, and it's also something where you constantly hear people tell this ridiculous lie that the 2008 financial crisis, like, Glass-Steagall had nothing to do with it. Well, these two big-to-fail institutions could not exist if Glass-Steagall was still on the books, you know? And and so it's just, it's such an insult to your intelligence uh, for people to tell you that this law that basically prevented financial crises for uh, about 60 years, uh, or at least prevented major ones, and now it's been repealed and we've had two in a row in uh, 20, 20 years. I just can't believe Robert Rubin was able to produce Beastie Boys, Jay-Z, and (laughs) have a hand in dismantling our financial system. (laughs) Robert Rubin's like, sorry, I wasn't watching the Asia markets. I was uh, getting the newest samples for License to Ill. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to wrap this one up, this part two. uh, We'll continue in part three. We'll talk about September 11th. uh, Enron, Citigroup's involvement there, their involvement in uh, uh, narcotics, money laundering, their involvement in mortgage-backed security fraud, foreclosure fraud. We'll we'll see how much crime we can get through in an hour. Yeah, Sean, um, it sounds though, like you're saying everything terrible that has involved millions upon millions of dollars that has happened over the last two and a half decades is somehow mm-hmm. one way or another linked to Citibank. <laughs> Basically, why your life was, like, in a profound sense ruined. Like, if you're, like, a millennial-age person, Mm -hmm. um, we're going to explain, like, a relatively large chunk of why that's the case. But I did want to just mention before we close out here, uh, we've talked so much about the benefits. And, of course, the same thing happens at Citigroup. And uh, briefly, you know, John Reed and Sandy Weil are the co-CEOs. John Reed is a more traditional CEO. He believes five years down the line, Sandy Reed doesn't, really. So they have arguments about these benefits for Citigroup employees, and eventually Sandy Weil pushes him out and becomes sole CEO. Mm -hmm. So just the last thing I wanted to mention here is Sandy Weil's playbook does not change ever. And from the Monica Langley Bush, from the Monica Langley book, the first thing Sandy Weil wanted to do is scale back on Citigroup's benefits. It would be a quick way to achieve cost saving. Uh, Citing a moral obligation to employees, Reed took the question under advisement Uh, and began an analysis of the situation. Um, Sandy Weil wanted to slash costs by reducing benefits and replacing them with stock options. Citigroup, like other big global banks, provided generous benefits. Uh, Eventually, 
Reed agreed to a plan that relied more heavily on stop, stock options and less on direct expenditures from Citigroup's coffers. Uh, so, you know, it's like everywhere else. It's the same playbook. We've gone through a million examples, but for most run-of-the-mill employees at Citigroup, they're not the ones seeing this money. It's yeah. just the people at the top, and everybody else, even within these kind of evil corporate structures, are, for the most part, getting fucked over. And with that, this has been Grubstakers. I'm Yogi Paywall. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Shumpy McCarthy. Uh, stay tuned for part three. Bye.